Welcome back, everyone, to the Passive Road to Retirement podcast. We are your hosts, Andrew Jarrett and Nick Cooper. Today, we're joined by Terry Shower, with 20 plus years experience as a real estate investor and property manager. Terry is CEO and founder of My Room Gestation, a property management and real estate consulting group based in Montreal, Canada. She's a leading authority on applying mindfulness principles to real estate investing and has written the number one best-selling book on the topic, Mindful Landlord. Co-host of two wealth and real estate podcasts, the Mindful Wealth Podcast and the Real Estate Investors Club Podcast. Her clients include business owners, executives, professionals who want to hedge the rat race and gain financial freedom through real estate. Her passion is to help fellow investors act for both profit and peace of mind. The key areas of her expertise are real estate with a focus on holistic wealth, financial freedom, female excellence, and investing and beyond. She has given keynote addresses at the Canadian real estate conferences on these topics. Terry holds a PhD and a master's degree from Oxford University. She is a two-time world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and her best-selling book, Mindful Landlord, is currently available on Amazon. Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome to have you, Terry. So I liked how you said in your in, you know the intro the holistic wealth. Like what what is that uh what does that mean to you? Okay, so I think you know one of my uh, beefs with the real estate industry, or at least the real estate coaching industry, is that it focuses on what I call the three Ds: more yeah. deals, yeah. more doors, more dollars, and that the metric of success that people talk about is those are those three metrics, and so it can sort of pull you into living a lifestyle that is not ultimately personally fulfilling. It might mean that your bank account's full. I call it like that, you know, the bank account Olympics, yes. but ultimately you have to look at, you know, a whole person and like, what are you doing in your, you know, your practice of real estate investing? Because okay. we talk about it as a business, but like, ultimately if it's your lifestyle, it's kind of like a practice that you have. So. No, it totally makes sense. And I think kind of asking to expanding on that as, being, I'm in partnership with my wife as well. So she's in real estate. What's it like being a lady? Do you have any advice for all these ladies that are up and coming now? Um, I mean, you know, I get, the, I actually get this question a lot. And okay. I think the, the boring answer is that I really, you know, haven't had that much difficulty, I guess, due to being a woman. I mean, other than, you know, the whole construction chapter, because I started, you know, when I was 25 and like, I would, right. you know, I'm not really tall, I'm blonde. Um, I also live in a, you know, part of the, I have an accent up here in Canada when I speak French. So mm -hmm. people had all kinds of, you know, stereotypes that I didn't know what I was talking about. And so, I mean, it was a little bit difficult to break through those stereotypes initially, but like once let's say the plumber or the Mason realizes that he's actually talking to someone that he can't pull the wool over my eyes. Um, that was pretty much dispelled by knowledge. Um, the other thing that I will say is that, you know, I, I, I now coach and I speak at real estate events and like right. I very often it's like 10 to 15% women in the room of investors. I don't know if that's, you know, what the stats are down where in the markets where you guys are, but I would say part of it has to do with, you know, an interest that I think, you know, just like maybe there's less women in engineering kind of naturally, like it self segregates, I think investment, um, properties are not necessarily something that attract a lot of women. If it's not, let's say, you know, something like Airbnb, I think is a more like feminine space in the investment space, but like I'm in multifamily and that's like right. pretty, pretty male dominated space. Um, though I don't feel like being a woman has really been a drag 
Um, except for maybe, you know, in the beginning, I, I see a lot of like young female investors coming up who have a bit of imposter syndrome. And I think even though a lot of people might suffer from that, I think as a woman, it's even more difficult because you look around the room and there's nobody who looks like you. So. Sure. Uh, that's, a, that's a great answer. I think so if my wife does it as well, I think a lot of skills that women can bring in that not really the soft touch, but if you're doing anything like a direct to seller, they seem to get a lot further than, than I will on the phone. So something that haven't been a little different, I think a lot of times is that advantage, especially with, with people like, you know, old, older, older men that usually are the ones that are seem to be running most of the stuff that are, or trying to sell it now, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know, like I, I'm, I'm more kind of like in a, you know, multi-family space where like, I don't, yeah. you know, if I'm dealing with someone, it's going to be an investor, you know, who in face of me, I don't do much, too much single family, but I'm sure that, that, um, you know, fee, there's lots of female realtors who do very well. And it's not yeah. like in the investment space, it's not like there's less female realtors. There just seems to be less multifamily female investors. So, okay. Yeah. That's a great point too, on the, uh, dealing with contractors. Now you've done property management 20, you know, 20 plus years. Do you, I guess two questions, do you self-manage, um, you know, all your stuff or do you have third party or how, how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, like my main hat that I wore through most of my career was as a property manager. I started okay. like the typical thing up here is that people start off with like, you know, two or three, uh, small properties, uh, duplexes, triplexes, that kind of thing. And then they get tapped out of borrowing capacity. And I kind of ended up there and, you know, for like 10 years, so like for half of my career, didn't yeah. figure out the financing to move to the next level. And what I did at that time was because I couldn't sort out the financing was like, I, I want to progress. So let me build a management portfolio. And then because sort of the secret sauce of my business model was management. So then I ended up, you know, managing a bunch of properties for other people. Um, as time has gone on, I've stopped, I've, I've done, I'm doing less of that. I now uh, half my units are in a sub market. That's about an hour and a half outside of Montreal. Um, so that my, you know, I don't have boots on the ground there. So I have managers who manage, uh, on site, but my head office still does all the administrative stuff. Okay. Um, I'm kind of running the same model actually in Montreal. I have somebody who deals with the uh, more of the on-site stuff and we kept the admin, which <laughs> as you can tell by my dislike of, you know, construction, right. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of explains that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey everyone. Hope you're enjoying this episode. Are you ready to maximize your real estate investing to its full potential? Join us at Level Up REI Coaching and take your life and business to all new levels. Send an email to nick at leveluprecoach.com. That's nick, N-I-C, at leveluprecoach.com. Do you have any pointers for people, you know, either doing their own asset management or, you know, their own property management, uh, something to watch out for, you know, any pointers dealing with management companies? For sure. So look, I mean, I think if I could just, you know, make kind of a blanket statement, I would say, you know, unless you're immediately jumping to a very big level, I recommend that people manage their own property at the beginning. So if it means taking six months or a year, managing the first triplex so that you really understand what's involved. And then when you're looking at scaling, then maybe it is part of your business model to hire a manager. And like, it's actually quite rare to find investors who are very good managers. So mm -hmm. I think, I, I don't know the statistics, but like, I think that a lot of people when they come to scaling um, need to leverage some kind of management service. And if you look at me, like I started out as a property manager, but I do right. maybe now 
you know, 25 to 30% of the management of my own investments. So I think yeah. eventually as you start scaling, you need to kind of either outsource or build a team where you're not the one, um, you know, going out there with a the screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, then we move to the next phase, which is managing the manager. And, yeah. you know, as somebody with 20 plus, you know, experience <laughs> in real estate, like I just, this in, in 2022, um, really got, taken for a ride by a property manager in the submarket that I invest in. And, mm. you know, I went through my due diligence when I picked the person. And then after yes. six months, it was clear that like they had no control over who was paying rent, stuff was missing. They weren't doing records properly. They weren't, wow. you know, doing their maintenance properly. And took some time to figure that out because when you don't live in that market, it's like, you're not going to the property every day. And I didn't have direct contact with the tenants. And so it, you know, it took time for that to emerge. And luckily it, well, there wasn't any major fraud or anything, but like, it was a real mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in terms of doing your due diligence in that, in that process, like, obviously you have to, you know, interview multiple managers, you should speak to other clients who have had experience with them. And then, you know, kind of as an ongoing thing, I just, want oversight, oversight, oversight. And that's where it comes in that it's really important for you to do your own management so that when you're overseeing what the person is doing, you have to check. So even if you only go out to the property every three months or every six months or once a year, keep the bills that they charged you for, make sure that this faucet was changed and this leak actually happened and that thing was replaced mm-hmm. the way they said. Yep. So like, you know, track or, or have someone else go and, and double check or have them send photos. Like you need to have some kind of checking for maintenance that's done. And then you need to, like, we actually have a, a you know, an internal bookkeeper who goes over the bank accounts and goes over the money to, to check. And I have my property managers actually work on my software. So they just have an access to my software. They get into our platform. So they're doing the data entry. They're doing some of like the rent recording in there. But then my internal bookkeeping person is going over those numbers and making sure that the bank account reflects what actually happens so that on a monthly Mm. basis, we catch anything that's off. So anything that you can do to like insert kind of checks and balances to make sure that the deliverables are are actually getting delivered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's almost like having like government, you know, the the three bank, well, Canada is probably a little different than the U S but having those checks and balances between the three branches. So <laughs> it's a, uh, what, how do you manage or, or measure those KPIs hitting those with your property managers? Cause you, as the asset manager, how do you, how do you go about doing that? Um, can you be more specific? Oh, so if you have a key performance indicator, how do you actually have someone hit that? Like say, I want to be at 90% occupancy. Like, do you have a incentive or do you, and also how do you track that? I mean, like we're more hands-on than that. So like, I'm really, really directly involved. Like, let's say, um, actually in all the markets, like I take care of the rental myself. So either I have a rental agent who's working in that particular market, um, or I have a staff member in Montreal who does the rentals, even though a lot of property managers offer that, that's like really something that I want to control because sometimes, you know, property managers, they, they want to get a unit rented, but at the yes. same time, are they really maximizing your rent? Are they really, they will usually try to place non-problematic tenants because they don't want to have problems any more than you do. But in terms of really like maximizing the rent, sometimes they kind of just want to collect their fees and get it done. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I can't, I can't really give you like a scientific answer for that of KPIs, but it's more that like, we really have like a blended model, you know, like it's as if the brain is at my head office in Montreal. And then there's like little, you know, sort of outposts of, of people who do things and then okay. report back or they're working in my software. So I know we actually do the leases 
electronically from the head office. Um, oh, wow. And then, you know, maybe the property manager will take care of doing the, you know, the walkthrough or something. Okay. So they'll basically just show the unit is all you're really doing. Do you guys have like your own maintenance teams then too, or do you have, you know, the property manager, like the little satellite branch do that stuff? Yeah. Well, so like in the, you know, in the submarket where I work, like they, they have their own team, like it's a, it's a full service property management company. I just only use them for the construction part. Um, okay. And in, in Montreal, it's blended it because sometimes my property manager actually has a better contact than me here. And so mm -hmm. often what we'll do is like, I know, for example, my plumber is better at this specific thing. So like, okay, I'll rather send my plumber. I know that like, it's actually really down to with exterminators, for example, it's actually down to the specific pest because I know that I have a really good exterminator for bed bugs, but like for everything else, they overcharge and they're not so good. So like mm -hmm. we've really blended our, our, uh, you know, uh, contact list. That's a pretty cool model. Hmm. I like it. I like that. So, so uh, we'll go ahead, Andy. I'm talking over you. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, so you have, um, you know, two-time world champion Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? So I guess, you know, from what I always hear, martial arts is very disciplined sport. Does that transfer over into your real estate investing? You know, the discipline on picking your investments yeah. and markets. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, but I think, you know, I wouldn't say obviously discipline and like, I, you know, I, my husband and I have this argument all the time where, where I'm like, you know, you don't get to be world champion just like that. Like it takes yeah. really, you know, hitting all of those things and you got to watch weight category sport. You got to watch your weight. You got to train. There's like so many things that you have to have your eye on. So I think mm -hmm. like in terms of personal discipline, I think I, you know, I, I've, I've mastered that like fairly effectively, but what I really got from the martial arts that, um, you know, has allowed me to do what I did in real estate is this sort of performance, um, optimiz optimizing of your mind. And like, when I talk about mindfulness, there's often, that's like a really a huge topic, but if you understand how your mind functions, so there are, for example, three levels of consciousness, you have okay. the thoughts, you have the emotions, and then you have behind that, this kind of presence that's called the watcher. And at any given moment, you can't shut those things up. Like you can't shut off your emotions. You can't shut off your thoughts, but you can choose which one of those levels you identify with. And that that becomes like a crazy performance tool. And like, I really, that I really learned in jujitsu because when you have to compete, like and actually kickboxed um, semi-pro before I started jujitsu. And that's mm -hmm. even worse in terms of like with the stuff that goes on in your mind. And so if you're like down here with your emotions freaking out, when you have to be focusing on your performance and like where you have to be in your match, there's really no way that you can perform at the best level. And so, you know, learning to kind of use your mind as a performance tool, like when I talk about mindfulness, that's what I mean. And then obviously like, you know, those are such high stress situations that if you then apply that to real estate, it's like kind of like a light version, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much different. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, if I can just, you know, give you like a little anecdote, you know, like for me, um, I'm actually a bit of an introvert, which at this point might not show okay. that much. Um, but I was like suffered from like severe shyness when I started what I was doing and, you know, networking, they say like real estate's a people business. Like I was having heart attacks, just like talking to realtors or like going to the bank, going to the notary, like dealing yeah. with those people. And again, I was 25. So projecting the confidence to actually be able to do that and seem serious was like, was very difficult. And I, and I used to have like, you know, major anxiety, Never mind networking events where you have to go and tell people what you do and introduce yourself. And <laughs> so like learning to manage my emotions and then, 
um, you know, that sort of performance thing and like applying that mindset to those situations where I was super uncomfortable. Um, it really made a big difference. Hmm. No, that's great. So kind of shifting gears a bit here, 2023 is going to be an interesting, interesting year. How are you going to prepare for it? <laughs> you know what? I think, I think like the last, like three years have been super interesting years. So like, what am I going to do? Like, <laughs> gonna, I got my surfboard out, you know, like I'm just surfing. Yeah. Ride the wave. No. <laughs> What's the next um, wave? <laughs> yeah, no, but so to be more specific, like uh, in Canada, we um actually, so we didn't go through 2008 the way the U S yeah. did. And we're in a pretty big correction right now uh, because like our central bank has been raising interest rates pretty much the same way as the U S but um, Canada's like number three on the list of overvalued real estate markets, or it was at least before the, you know, the correction started. Um, and so like, we're, we've got like a real capital crunch here. So even though there are starting to be deals, people haven't totally adjusted to bringing their prices down, but it's pretty difficult, like, because people just don't have money, right? Like if yeah. they can't liquidate, it's difficult for them to find money to like reinvest in something else. Um, and so we've, we've gone through this like really interesting reversal where before you couldn't find deals and the money was everywhere. Now there are starting to be deals but there's no money. <laughs> um, so then it, it becomes, you got to shift, you know, who you're sort of courting and then, you know, the, the money, the money side of it becomes more interesting. Whereas before it was a concern was about deal flow. Um, and I think that in terms of preparing for the upcoming year, like that's really what it is, you know, um, picking and choosing the deals that are going to start coming and uh, making sure that there's enough liquidity around to actually, you know, position oneself on a good deal when one shows up. So I think, most investors that we, you know, probably listen to the podcast here are in the U.S. is, can you kind of explain what's kind of the difference between the U.S. and, and Canadian markets? Is there much of a difference? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, yeah. I think, first of all, our banking uh, is very different, which is one of the reasons why we didn't go through the 2008 crash. Yeah. Um, credit is much more of a challenge. Um, our market is just like a whole lot more regulated. So, for example, right now, the Canadian government just came in with a law that no foreign yeah. buyers Saw can buy that. residential property yep. but listen to this it it doesn't deal with multi-residential so we're oh, talking about oh. i think it's i'm not sure if they drew the line at a triplex or a fourplex but it's only single family homes duplexes triplexes that foreign buyers can't touch but okay. the minute you get bigger than that the government's really not concerned with it um, hmm. And then there's also, they haven't totally worked out the fine print when it comes to um, company ownership. So if you have like a Canadian incorporated company here, uh, what is the ownership structure of that have to be for an American oh. buyer or co-owner to get into that? That's like, it's not clear right now. Um, okay. So, I mean, you know, those are, those are sort of two points. And so yeah. how does, how is that different? Well, it just means that Oh, another, another data point. So apparently one in 20 houses in the U S is a foreclosure. One in 900 is a foreclosure. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah. That is different. <laughs> That's quite a Delta. Yeah. yeah. So like we have much less, you know, distressed properties, much yeah. less people liquidating under, you know, poor circumstances. Um, everything is just much, I would say slower. Um, and, and it's as if, you're kind of less able to make mistakes because those checks and balances are there. And like the government is really trying to prevent people from putting themselves into financial trouble. So. So if I was an American, I want to invest in Canada, like as like a traditional like syndication, could I do that still? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, provided that um, you're investing in, uh, in four doors and more. Right. 
but usually that ends up being kind of what syndication is anyways. Like yeah. there's not, I mean, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make blanket statements. I think like Toronto and Vancouver, which are like, um, actually I think 70% of Canadian equity is tried up in those two markets. So like they're really big us in Montreal were much, um, smaller and in there, I think there's more, more of that kind of stuff with single family homes. But generally speaking, when people do, um, you know, syndications, it ends up being on bigger multi-residential properties. And for that, you just need a, you know, a Canadian partner on the ground. You can go in it alone, but uh, definitely in my market where everything transpires in French and you really do need local knowledge, uh, you, you probably should have a partner, a local partner. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Terry, most people have, you know, some kind of deal that's gone bad, you know, if they've been investing long enough. Do you have a deal like that or one that just didn't end up how you thought. Maybe you could explain <laughs> yeah. That. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you're asking the question, I'm like, which one am I going to tell yeah, you? Yeah, show us, show um, us the dirty laundry. Yeah. Um, so I have this. I had this deal that um, I we closed on it in April last year. Um, when I realized maybe closing on the deal wasn't as good as it was when we made an offer on it four months before. So it was like kind of the time when you couldn't get deal flow. And we had this undervalued uh, Aplex that was uh, selling for about 100K under pricing at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it was in like the worst part of Montreal, which is Montreal North. And I usually invest in low income areas, but I never went there because that's the worst area of Montreal. And I'm like, oh. okay, you know, let's see if my business model works there. Let's see if my management okay. team can handle it. Like, let's just mm -hmm. run an experiment. It's 100K under it was a pocket listing. So like, let's okay. just close on this and, and see how it goes. Sure. And like the last, yeah, the last year really has been like managing. I think I was at the rental board with six out of eight of the people. And like, not just once, like two, three times for non-payment. We got like a woman in there who, um, it's actually kind of sad. Like we, she, she was, had poo in bags like in her oh, bathroom man. um and of yeah. course our rental board laws here like you can't evict people so like really? she's still running this like the place is infested with cockroaches and like we can't get her out even though like wow. it, she's contaminated you know the entire building anyway <laughs> is, is the rental board like your type of like your your equal your public housing type is that what it is or, or what is rental board in canada um i mean it's the it's tenancy court i don't know what you guys would call uh, that okay like yeah, i think housing each, court basically yeah yeah state has a housing court like our, our one mm -hmm. is called um uh, the administrative tribunal of housing oh that sounds formal <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and anyways no so this you know this deal and like i did it as a joint venture with um a partner of mine who luckily has a sense of humor because yeah. every time like you know we need to cough up another thousand bucks for extermination or like somebody else put a hole in the wall or like you know the latest one send us a cease and desist letter or something that we have to fix this and this and this thing and then we have to actually do it like <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's my deal that maybe with retrospect we should not have closed on that one but like we were just everybody's eyes were bigger than their stomachs at a certain point and um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you eventually get them out i mean is that like a law that came up after covid or is that just always has it always been like that for eviction um, i mean we have like a very you got to think of us a little bit like the california of uh or new york yeah. right like we have very okay. strong rent control and it's like very difficult to evict so like eventually eventually you will get them, but it could be a battle that takes a year. And like, 
for us, the best thing is when they don't pay their rent, because that is pretty decisive. Like it takes about six weeks to evict someone for not, not paying the rent, but mm. everything else you're looking at like a year or two of like a war of attrition and multiple appearances. Wow. And, you know, one time they didn't send her the letter to appear in court you know, so we showed up, we paid the exterminator. We had all the witnesses there in court. The woman doesn't show up and the judge is like, oh, look, we didn't send her the letter. Like, okay, well, we're out, you know, almost a grand for getting everyone together to come to the rental board to sit down and witness. But okay, yes. we can't hear the case today because you guys didn't send the letter. So, yeah, anyway. I have properties in New York, so I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> we had a similar thing. We, we send certified mail. You're supposed to send certified and just like a normal letter. And the tenant came to court and said, came to court and said she never got noticed that she had court, which yeah. makes sense, right? So the judge still <laughs> pushed it out another month. Beautiful. She was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but she didn't know she had court, but she was there. Yeah, so beautiful. yeah, I know. I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. But, so uh, so our, our podcast name is, you know, the passive road to retirement. What would be your number one strategy for a passive income investment or, you know, strategy for somebody, maybe they're just starting out more advanced. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, look, obviously you're talking to a real estate person, so I'm yeah, pretty right. bi biased towards real estate and I'm pretty biased towards, um, you know, just the like buy and hold rental property thing game. Like it's not always super sexy. And like, sometimes people are like, oh, you know, Terry, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you do what you do. Like either one version of it's not sexy enough like the the returns are not good enough or else uh it just takes so much patience but it's really you know i'm all about incremental improvements and i think this is another thing that comes from my sports background is that like for sure the first two years you're training like every time you show up at the gym you learn something new but right. if you're trying to get to the top of something like you're fighting for millimeters every time yeah. in performance mm -hmm. and you know but the cumulative effect of those millimeters becomes huge over a five to 10 year time period. And I think the type of real estate investing that I do, which is buy and hold of like, they're not huge properties. Like a lot of them are, you know, six to eight units within the grasp of most people who are investing. And because those things compound and because if you have multiple doors, you have, let's I'll have eight chances to raise the rent. I'll have eight chances right. to cut costs. Whereas if I just have one tenant in one property, then I'm kind of limited with what I can do with that revenue stream. Like when I buy an Aplex, I have eight revenue streams. So that the, the power of that, even if it's only $15 a year, $35 a year, whatever our rent cap is here, it's not huge. Like a lot of the time our rent increases are like 30 bucks, you know? Mm -hmm. But over a 10 year time period, what that does on your multiples of revenue, it really stacks up. So- yes incremental improvements. <laughs> I love it. What's your, uh, like, what's your average cap rate on like a C class, you know, property in Montreal there? Um, so we talk more in terms of, uh, like GRMs, like, uh, revenue okay. multipliers. Um, okay. and okay. so right now, you know, in the height of COVID things were selling at about uh, 25 times revenue. Um, now, now it's like, it's really tough to give you an answer. Like good deals are almost like as far down as like, you know, 16, 17, 15 by the time you're negotiated. And in the sub market that I work in like 12 times revenues. Okay. Hmm. Wow. It's definitely yeah. diff different, different world right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How come? <laughs> nah, it's just, it's cha everything's changed. I think the last like six months to a year or so from, like you said, you mentioned about how it was money chasing deals. Now it's deals looking for money. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's such a, you know, who moved my cheese situation. And I think this is also, you know, like a lot of people who've been in the game now for whatever, four or five years, they've only known up. And since I've been doing this for 20 years, I started when I was, you know, whatever, 25, like the market 25, 20, 20 years ago, like it had time to go through some ups and downs. And like when I started, we were in a very slow upward trajectory where all you did was, you know, took your tiny rent increases every year and hope to capitalize relatively, you know, quickly because of, because of, of the, you know, GRM was low. Um, but now as everyone is in this kind of speculative mode and like money, 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 uh, throw tenants out, do this up the rents, da, da, da. Like a lot of the, the fast talkers really couldn't make a mistake. And, and I think got overconfident, but if you've been in, if you're in, you've been in the game for a long time, or if you're in for a long term, just like, okay, well it's a shift. So now let me adapt to the new situation and not panic. And I mean, I have a pretty conservative business model anyway. So, you know, I'm not, uh, not, I don't have a yacht. I'm not driving a Tesla, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it means that right now I'm also sleeping at night. So, right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. It's a good feeling, right? <laughs> not being stressed. Uh, so if you were in our shoes for the interview, what's one question you would ask yourself that we haven't asked you? Oh man, that's really tough. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, actually, you know what? I have a good one. Um, and you know, on my podcast, we actually, I actually do this. Is my last question is what okay. should we be talking about that um, we're not talking about? And um, you know, one of the things that I feel like us in the industry where we do a disservice is um, missing discussing the lifestyle hits that we all took to get where we are. And I think, you know, in a world that's uh, determined by, you know, Instagram feeds and, uh, you know, people trying to kind of show off of where they are. And like, I get it. You know, it's good to celebrate where you are. It's good to be proud of what you have, where you got there. But people don't give that backstory of all the delayed gratification and all the sacrifices that they made to be where they are. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I can be very transparent, like, you know, I started my business out of one room of my apartment that I, you know, I had a roommate, I did own the building, but like I rented out, it was a two bedroom. I was renting out the other bedroom. I did that for like eight years and yeah. it was in a very bad part of town, which, you know, gentrified slowly a little bit during the time that I was living there. But like, there were like, you know, prostitutes on the corner and there was drug dealing going on and like, obviously Canada's safe. So it's not like it was a risk for security, but like, it's definitely not the kind of place where you're like, yes, I want to go live in that neighborhood. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I did that for 10 years until I had enough cash flow to pay the mortgage on the single family house in the reasonable powder town that I live in now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still have secondhand appliances. Like, you know, if I am going to make big capital investments, it's to do things that are going to bring me long-term cash flow. And so that means that like my daily lifestyle is maybe not as extravagant as someone else, but you know, the upside of that is the freedom to not have that pressure of a lot of overhead costs. And it's also the, the, the fact of being able to then build, have the luxury to build a business without the stress that, you know, you're burning cash at God knows what rate. So. Yep. That's a great point. I actually was similar. I had a, a duplex I lived in. I, I bought it on owner financing and rented out my living room and the spare bedroom to two of my <laughs> friends and then rented the downstairs unit. And I actually got, I was, you know, getting paid to live there, but it was great. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, like how many people, like when you tell the story of like, I'm a real estate investor now, you know, I'm 45 years old. Like this is my portfolio size, blah, blah, blah. Like 
how often do you just transparently, you know, like open your coat and be like, no, but like, this is what I did for 10 years to get here. And like, right. yes, I'm here now. And this is how, like how nice my life is, but like, just, just be, you know, straight up about the fact that like, yeah, I house hacked because I had to do that at a certain time in my career. And I think um, we do a disservice when we don't be straight up with people about that. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's that whole quote. I think like Gary Vee says, you know, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success. Exactly. So that's exactly what you kind of kind of put there encapsulate it that way. So that's awesome. Great point. Now, Terry, how do people get a hold of you and how do they watch your podcast? Uh, right. So to get hold of me, probably the best way to connect is just on LinkedIn. So it's my name, Terry Shower on LinkedIn. I do also have a website, terryshower.com. Um, like you mentioned in the beginning, my book is available on Amazon. It also has its own website. Cool. So mindfullandlord.com. And then um, the podcasts, um, the Real Estate Investors Club podcast is everywhere where you listen to podcasts. So, and if you follow me on social media, like I will, you know, announce every time there's a new episode out. So <laughs> sweet, awesome. Sweet. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. Well, we'll get into our five to thrive. This is our word yeah. association game. So this, uh, I'm just going to list off five words right in a row and just give me the first word or phrase that comes to your mind. The only thing is you cannot repeat the same answer. Okay. This is going right. to be tough. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you got it. Yeah. All right. The first one, property management. Oh, my secret sauce. Okay. Rat race. Get out of it. <laughs> Financial freedom. Um, That's the prize you want to keep your eyes on. Good. I like that one. Martial yep. arts. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. A great way to perfect your mindset. And the mindful landlord. Ah, that's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like it. Well, Terry, thanks for coming on. We appreciate your time and it was great having you. Yeah, Thanks, Terry. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, guys. It's been fun.